Hello, and welcome to the second season of Genetically Speaking, the podcast for the American Society of Human Genetics, where we explore the human stories behind human genetics and genomics research. I'm your host, Chris Gunter. Today, I'm looking forward to hearing more about a policy forum published in 2021 in the journal Science entitled Using DNA to Reunify Separated Migrant Families. This is an area that ASHG has followed for some time, including issuing letters of support for legislative amendments in this area and sessions at the 2019 annual meeting, among others, which address both the science and the societal issues involved. Today, we're pleased to welcome the joint first authors, Liz Barner with UCLA and Sarah Katsanis with Lurie Children's Hospital and Northwestern University. Welcome and thank you both for joining us. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you. So your work talks about the use of DNA for family reunification. That's such a challenging area, both professionally and personally. So can you first define what you mean by family reunification? Sure, I'll I'll take this question. So the reason that we were so specific about the title is, is that the role of DNA is really for the identification of a match between a child and a parent or other biological relative. And that is part of the reunification process. It's the first step when you have a match. And then what happens after that is is after the involvement of the forensic geneticist the reuniting is if the families actually come back together if they have that hug or they have that first phone call or they exchange um letters or um other ways of communicating so our role what we're proposing with dna bridge is to help with the dna identification process because we want dna to be used whenever it's appropriate to be used and to have there be no children that are separated because they couldn't be found because the DNA technology exists and could be used. So that's what we mean. We mean using DNA for identification within the larger process of reunification. Got it. And then maybe could you each expand on what led you to be involved in this research area? So I would say that we were struck by um, the 2018 separations that that we learned about in 2018 as families were being separated um, and that it was systematic um, and quite extensive. And we learned later that it had been happening back in 2017 as well. Um, And certainly for for years, for decades, there are separations are part of the migration process, but it was um, systematized for a large number of family units in 2018. And at that time, DNA was talked about in the media among many stakeholders that work with DNA, whether it could be useful, whether personal genomic tests might be useful for connecting people. And ultimately HHS said in July, 2018, that they would use DNA tests, one-to-one DNA tests to reunify families as part of their um, reconstructing those families after having separated them. Um, However, that approach wasn't successful and it was through the government and there weren't privacy protections in place to make that an appropriate use of of genetic technologies. So it was that culmination of, wait a minute, we know that this tool is powerful. We know that it is useful, but it was being misapplied um, back in 2018 now that we learned in 2020 that there were still separations and that there were still these families that were separated back then and never reunified, that that triggered 
um, a bunch of us to put our heads together to say, maybe there's a way to do this. There should be a way to use this genetic technology that is powerful, that is used in mass disasters all the time, that is used in war crime investigations. We know how to protect that data in other um, contexts. Why can't we apply that to this context and how can we construct that? That's what got us, us started in this conversation. And if I may add, so I'm not a DNA expert. That's why it's so awesome to work with Sarah and to be part of this group. Um, but what Sarah is saying, applying lessons and technology um, from other contexts is key. So I have done ethnographic research with Asociación Pro Búsqueda in El Salvador, which is an organization that puts together families that were separated through the Civil War. And we helped to build a DNA bank um, in the early 2000s that has been used to confirm existing matches, make a difference in international human rights courses, uh, courts, and even make cold hit matches. Um, and so I have seen from doing work with the young people who were separated as children and then reunited um, in their 20s, how separation has a lifelong impact on people's well-being. Um, and so that's why the timeliness of this and the timeliness that DNA can help bring is, is so important. Both mentioned specific DNA technology, so let me ask a little more about that for our bioinformatics people listening. So what uh, specific DNA technologies are being used and who's using them? So what we're talking about is these simple forensic tools that have been used for many decades now, a couple decades at least. Um, the short tandem repeats, STRs is what they're commonly called. Um, the federal government and most forensic laboratories use a set of 20 STRs. These 20 STRs are also commonly used in rapid DNA technology. So the instruments that can be placed in the hands of a non-geneticist to be able to process just cheek swabs, buckle swabs um, very quickly within two hours and get um, a full DNA profile. Um, so that's the technology we're talking about. Now we also are, STRs are very good at parent-child relationships. They're perfectly reasonable even for ships. They're pretty good but not great at more distant relationships. So we are suggesting that DNA samples be retained for those relationships that might be more distant than a parent-child or, or full-sib relationship so that SNP technologies could be used. Likely, um, now this isn't being done yet, but, but likely we could use triallelic SNPs where A, C, or G um, might be a valuable way to get a profile that's better um, for distinguishing these relationships, but not using these whole genome SNP panels, but rather a select set of triallelic SNPs to get more discrimination than the SCRs provide. And Liz, do you want to address who's using the technologies? Sure. So right now we're in the process of really the the science article was establishing a framework like hey world dna could be used it exists let's think through the central tenets of if we apply it so we haven't actually started implementation we've road mapped and have the partnerships of of how this can happen and so 
part of the members of DNA Bridge are the on-the-ground DNA experts in Latin America, which is so exciting. So the DNA Bank in Argentina is involved. ProBusqueda in El Salvador would help with the, the DNA component. And, the, um, and then their partner, we would partner also with an immigrant rights organization in El Salvador. And then we have on-the-ground legs in Guatemala with Guatemala's DNA Bank, the FAFG. Um, so we have a plan, um, but we, we're still working on getting buy-in from the federal government. Though that's important to clarify since I mentioned it's very, we all agree that it's very important that this ha process happens outside of the government with cooperation with the government, um, but the government does not control the data. And by that, do you mean the U.S. federal government or a different country? The or U.S. federal it. government. Yes. Any government, actually. Yeah. I would okay. say any government. So okay. we, we, have, we have partnered with the International Commission on Missing Persons. They are part of our DNA bridge as well. And they have a long history of working with um, war crime investigations, um, post-Bosnian conflict, um, conflicts in Libya and Iraq. Uh, where they have been able to manage the DNA sampling, the, the family reference sample collection, the grave exhumations, and then the DNA typing from, from those remains, and all of that handled within their laboratory, which is an intergovernmental organization. And that's one of the keys to what we are suggesting is that if we use an intergovernmental organization, it's different from an NGO because they have a, the Hague level of protections outside of governments. So governments can ask for that information, they can subpoena it, but they can, but the ICMP can go to the, the International Commission courts to protect that data and protect release of that data. So we, we are suggesting that such an organization, and it doesn't have to be ICMP, but it makes sense for it to be ICMP because they do have the expertise and the protections to manage the DNA data, and they can manage it for a long time. So if we have a lot of families that are missing their children in Central America, and they want to provide DNA data, and those children are not able to be sampled, ICMP can retain that data for a decade until those children have turned of age and come looking for their parents. Sarah, I think maybe this is a perfect opportunity to talk about the database strategy aspect of it. Yeah, I think the, one of the pieces that we're suggesting is, um, and you asked how, how is it being used now? The HHS had suggested that they do DNA testing to reunify families. And that was a one-to-one -one test. So that was parent comes forward, I'm looking for my kid. This kid we think is related to that parent. We'll sample that child. We'll compare it to that parent and run that DNA test in a relationship testing lab. And then it's like a paternity test. They're either the parent or they're not the parent. And if they're not the parent, that result then goes to in that file with that case, which means that they're not a genetic parent, doesn't mean that they're not a parent. And this is where it was a difficult um, situation, one, to get access to each of those samples. So you would have either the child at the lab or the, or the parent's DNA at the lab, and they weren't able to get the other to compare, or they would get 
they could possibly get a negative report, which could be negative detrimental to the um, the case, to the parent and the child reunifying if they were actually parent-child, just not genetically related. So we're suggesting a DNA database approach so that if you have that group of, of um, children and a group of parents and you can compare them if there are matches, then those are the ones that can be expedited for reunification. Those, those positive matches can be marked in the files and the advocates can work with those families on their reunification process, use it in courts if necessary to document parentage. If there's not a match, that doesn't mean that it's detrimental to that case. It just means that there wasn't a genetic match in the system but that there are other tools to demonstrate parental bond. There's photographs, there's signatures on, on report cards. There's a lot of other ways to demonstrate a parent-child relationship besides genetics. And so that's why we're advocating for this database approach rather than the one-to-one -one testing. That makes sense. Wow. It's so much. And there's so many emotions tied in there as well. So, so let me ask what, what one of the things we're focusing on in this season of genetically speaking is how do people get the chance to talk about topics like these in journals and how did the journal process go? So how did you get the chance to write about this work for this specific journal? Well, we thought about which journal to go to, and we decided we wanted a U.S.-based journal. So we could have gone to, to another nature, nature genetics, something outside of the U.S., but we decided this was an American problem that was started by American government and that we should probably focus on an American journal. So that was our, our first tier of, of which journal are we going to select. Um, and the science for or the policy forum has always had um, a good space for this kind of conversation. Um, I cite many of science forum <laughs> policy forum pieces in, in my work over the years. So it seemed like the right fit. It also is a decent um, award limit. So, so space to say this is what we want to say. This is how we're going to say it um, and a broad audience. Our audience was not geneticists. It was scientists and and thinkers. We wanted policymakers to be thinking about this, not the scientists. The science is the easy part. We know how to manage DNA. We know how to manage DNA data storage. We even know how to write consent forms. It's really just putting the things together and for the policymakers to say, we have this idea. We know how to put those three things together in this, this unique context. Right. That makes sense. So then as you got this chance, did the writing go as you expected it to, or were there hurdles, challenges along the way? Well, we had 20 authors. So that's the first <laughs> a lot of cats um, burden, is, is to figure out, and they're a diverse set of authors. We have attorneys and human rights lawyers, and we have have family advocates, and we have physicians, we have geneticists, policy experts, um, so it was, it was across the board, a lot of, we had tech people too. Um, so it, and we keep adding people to our consortium that are not necessarily on the paper because we wrote the paper in March and now it's July and in April and May, we were adding more people to the consortium. So that expanded it as well. So we had two new authors added 
between the March submission and the May acceptance um, and some others that we've tried to figure out in the acknowledgements. I think the challenge to writing it um, was, was the editorial process because we had really thoughtful reviewers um, and it's a timely piece. So it all had to happen very quickly. Um, and the reviewers had really great comments and but working through all that and then keeping the word limit and then the number yes. of citations we can have um that it was a, it was a huge ask it was a large large hurdle to jump um i think the second piece was at the the editor stage where i think we underestimated how much involvement the editors might have in the process of communicating both what we want to say and what the reviewers had suggested um, and I, I think it was a positive um, collaboration. It was just unexpected. So there, there were certainly some eye-opening points that our editor made that we said, oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. And I, I see we didn't quite communicate that the right way. And they worked very well with us to figure out the best way to communicate that um, but we also couldn't loop in another 18 authors in <laughs> each of those versions. So it was it was me and Liz back and forth, back and forth. Um, and then with the editor, I'm sure Liz can add more to the number of times that I texted her. <laughs> yeah, no, this is when Sarah and I became texting buddies. I think that the what Sarah described about having so many authors um, it was a challenge and it's kind of neat if you look at the article now, it really reflects everybody's discipline. Like the lawyer contributed the legal stuff and the rights language and made sure that that was all correct. And then we had multiple geneticists. So those were the paragraphs that I just read for like framing and flow. And then there's things about child well-being that and, and this concept of what is reunification that I sort of helped drive. Um, and I absolutely agree that um, I learned a lot in the editing process um, because we did need help on the messaging, incorporating all of those perspectives and then having a new reader who hadn't sat through us and who was an expert at messaging was very, very helpful. Yeah, that's great. And it's so cool to hear that an interdisciplinary collaboration like this can work really well. That's that's really exciting. So let me end by asking if members of ASHD, particularly trainees, have read the piece and want to get involved in this area, what would you suggest as a first step? Um, I'm not sure how to answer that question uh, because I think it's broad. If they want to help us figure out how to use genetic information to to uh, reunify children, jump in and help. <laughs> there so are they, many they could just contact you or your organization or do you have like social media or what's the best way for people? Right. To so out? we we have a website, dnabridge.org, that okay. has all of the members involved currently involved um, with DNA Bridge. And that's probably the best place to start to understand what we're trying to do along with the policy forum that we wrote. Um, but I would also advocate for ASHD, young ASHD people or old to look for lots of opportunities like this where genetics can be useful outside of the clinic. We get so wrapped into how genetics is used in the clinic, at the bedside, in the research lab, 
Um, we lose track of its utility outside of medicine and how best to harness that information and how best to communicate how that information is being used. And I think that that's, that's a huge miss on, on the part of ASHD members um, and, and ways, ways for them to contribute to the world that people, most people who interact with genetics interact first on paternity testing, ancestry testing, seeing it on TV being used in a crime lab. And that's their first exposure to DNA and genetics. Even the middle school curriculum and molecular genetics is based on these non-medical applications. So I would encourage looking for opportunities to educate and to understand the, the privacy implications involved with this kind of data that are different than the clinical applications, et cetera. So get involved in the non-medical applications and, and think about how best to, to harness and use this information. Chris, I would say for this project, um, we are going to need help getting the word out. And so if younger members who are great at social media, mobilizing social campaigns, we need to get the word out in Central America and in the United States. We would welcome um, young people's involvement. And thank you so much for having us on and for helping us get the word out about this work. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I second that. Thank you so much for, for highlighting our work.